These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we took our first peek into the great collection of letters housed in the Egyptian city of Amarna, focusing naturally on the ones coming from Babylon. We saw that the Babylonian king, Kadashman Enlil, was concerned as to the whereabouts of his sister, who had been sent a generation earlier to be a consort of the Egyptian pharaoh, but who had not been heard from since. We read that the messengers sent to confirm her life reported that she was not in Pharaoh's court, but then that Pharaoh considered these men to be nobodies, untrustworthy and unqualified to even know what the king's sister looked like in the first place. Today, we're going to continue looking at the correspondence between King Kadashman Enlil and Pharaoh Akhenaten, because I think it's fun. Here we have 100% true stories from the hands of the two kings themselves, or at least from the hands of these king scribes, with what seems to be very little editing of the king's words themselves. Our second letter begins with the usual formalities. Kadashman Enlil is writing to his nominal brother, the Egyptian pharaoh, and bids first of all that all of his family and his nation are doing well, stating that his family and nation are also well. It then reads, Inasmuch as my brother, the pharaoh, has written to me about marriage, and recall that this was the whole reason for the previous letter, pharaoh wanted a new wife, and Kadashman Enlil asked what had happened to the old one. Inasmuch as my brother has written to me about marriage, saying, I desire your daughter. Well, why should you not marry her? My daughters are available. My only rule is that the husbands must be kings or men of royal descent. This is natural, for no king gives daughters to those not of royal descent. That said, your daughters are also available. Why have you not yet given me one? Now, part of the tablet is broken at this point, but it seems little else is discussed. For when it picks up, it reads, Have some fine horses, 20 wooden pieces of furniture, a pile of gold, 120 shekels of silver. I send all this to you just as a greeting gift. Now, this is, of course, partly to show off the wealth and therefore power of Babylon, but also as a sort of advance payment, expecting the Egyptians to reciprocate with something of equal value. Also, 60 shekels of lapis lazuli I send as a greeting gift to my sister because she's your wife. Now, does this last bit mean that the matter of Kadashman Enlil's missing sister has been resolved somewhere unrecorded in these letters? Perhaps. But it's perhaps more likely that the Kassite king is simply agreeing with the pharaoh because women are not important in themselves, only as bargaining chips in the political game, the functional equivalent of the fine horses and wood furniture that grease the wheels of international diplomacy. We don't have the pharaoh's reply, but it seems that at this point there was some interruption in the normal diplomatic process. Actually, it's quite possible that while Kadashman Enlil may not have realized it, this letter that we've just read was actually deeply offensive to the pharaoh and the Egyptian political order overall. But we'll see that soon enough. This next letter, addressed to the pharaoh from the king of Babylon, begins in the usual way by wishing the pharaoh well, calling him brother, saying that things are well in Kassite lands as well. It then continues... Concerning the young woman, my daughter, about whom you wrote concerning a marriage relationship. The girl is now grown up. 
She is nubile. Send an envoy, and I will let you take her away. In other matters, you know that in the past, my father used to send envoys to you, and you would not detain them many days. You used to send him on his way quickly, and you used to send loving greeting gifts to my father. Now, when I last sent you an envoy, you detained him for six years. And in the sixth year, you sent him with 30 minas of gold that look like silver for my greeting gift. Now, one thing to note here is that gold is rarely found pure in its natural state in the Near East. Far more common is a gold and silver alloy called electrum. And naturally, the more gold and less silver in the electrum, the more valuable it is. Kadashman Enlil here is suggesting that the king sent very high silver content electrum instead of proper gold, acting like a cheapskate. That and holding the ambassador for six years both have Kadashman Enlil questioning the pharaoh. And he closes with, When you celebrated a great festival, you did not send your envoy, saying, Come, eat and drink, nor did you send any greeting gift from your festival. These 30 mina of gold that you sent are not equal to the greeting gift that I sent you in any single year. I have built a new house. Within my house, I've built a large door. Your envoys have seen the new house, and now I'm making my first entry into my house. So you should come to me and eat and drink with me for a housewarming party. See, I am doing what you have not done. 25 men and 25 women, a total of 50 people, are included with this message as a greeting gift, as are 10 full wooden chariots and horses. Now, one of the things people are often struck by when reading through the Amarna letters, all of them, is how petulant and childish these rulers can sound when asking for gold or other presents. And indeed, if we read it with a modern eye, some of these letters can sound downright spoiled with their fixation on treasure. And for sure, some of the rulers who ask Egypt for gold in these letters are unabashedly looking for handouts. But that's not what Kadashman Enlil is doing here. Rather, it's standing tradition that rulers are not, for whatever reason, allowed to make explicit sales with other rulers. It must be beneath their dignity or something. Instead, they give gifts with the expectation of receiving gifts in return. For whatever reason, Kadashman Enlil has been holding up his side of the bargain, but not getting paid back with the pharaoh's gifts. He's dropping the mask a bit here, reminding the pharaoh that this is meant to be an even exchange, and being the better man by quite consciously setting the example. Quite sadly, we do not have the pharaoh's reply to this, but it seems that things are quickly reaching ahead, and the misunderstandings are starting to get sorted out. The opening of the next letter is damaged, but probably had the standard well wishes from the king of Babylon to the pharaoh of Egypt. But then he jumps right into the heart of the matter, saying, Furthermore, my brother, you wrote to me about not giving a daughter when I write to you for a daughter for marriage, saying, oh, From days of old, the daughter of a king of Egypt has never been given to anybody. But I ask you, why has one never been given? You're a king. You can do whatever you want. If you were to give a daughter, who could say anything about it? Now, it's, it's hard to tell here if Kadashman Enlil is being serious or not. 
On one hand, does he have no understanding of the millennia of tradition that even the most iconoclastic pharaoh is operating under? It's very well possible that he doesn't, or at least not in the way that we can understand it today. As I said last episode, it's possible that ancient Egypt was even more unknown and exotic to the Babylonian kings than it is to us today, since though much has been lost in the thousands of years since that time, much simply wouldn't have made it over to Babylon except as rumor and gossip in the very highest degree. On the other hand, it is possible that Kadashman Enlil had some idea but is speaking in very blunt terms, what we might today call real politic. We saw him earlier explaining the realities of the royal exchange system to the pharaoh. Perhaps he's here reminding the pharaoh that he is, in fact, an absolute monarch. And if he chooses not to engage with other nations fairly, then he can blame tradition all he wants, but the blame ultimately rests on his royal shoulders. It's likely this latter, for he continues, When they told me this message, I wrote to you, my brother, saying, You know there are grown daughters of someone in your kingdom, plenty of beautiful women. Send one as if it were your daughter. Who will say that she is not the king's daughter? But you, because of your policy of not sending, have not sent anyone. Did you not seek brotherhood and friendship with me? And you wrote to me about marriage, that we might become closer together. And I, because of this, for brotherhood and friendship, wrote to you about marriage in order that we might become closer together. As for you, my brother, why did you not send even one woman? Perhaps, since you did not send me any women, I, for that reason, should withhold a woman from you. My daughters are not available anymore, perhaps. Now, this next bit is damaged, but it appears that this withholding is purely a hypothetical, and he fully intends to send the pharaoh a royal wife, as well as some animals. For the letter continues, Now, as for my daughter, which I'm sending you, you may not accept her offspring, but definitely send whatever animals I've requested of you. As for the gold I wrote to you about, your very best gold, a lot of it, before your envoy arrives. Now, quickly, during this harvest season, send to me, either in the month of Tammuz or Ab, so that some of the works that I've started may be carried out. If you take too long and I finish the work, why should I need your gold? Then, even if you send me 3,000 talents of gold, I would not accept it. I would send it back to you, and I would not give my daughter in marriage. Now, honestly, the more I read Kadashman Enlil's letters, the more I think he's fantastic. He pulls no punches, flitting between the thinnest veneer of diplomatic sensibility and openly, patronizingly lecturing the pharaoh on the realities of international diplomacy. All this back and forth about marriage, but really he's just selling a daughter in exchange for the gold to finish some building projects. It seems that the pharaoh ultimately agreed with this, as the next letter is one from Akhenaten to Kadashman Enlil, and pretty well speaks for itself. After the standard greetings, the pharaoh says, Now, I heard folks saying you've been building a new palace. 
Now I've sent you possessions, necessities for your house, and now I'm preparing abundant possessions in anticipation of your envoy who's bringing your daughter. And when your envoy will return, I will send them to you. Now I've sent to you a greeting gift for the new house in charge of Shuti. One bed of ebony adorned with elephant ivory and gold, three beds of ebony adorned with gold, one headrest of ebony adorned with gold, one large chair of ebony adorned with gold, five chairs of ebony adorned with gold, four chairs of ebony adorned with gold. These things, all of the gold, its weight, seven minas, nine shekels of gold. The weight of silver, some number lost of minas, eight and a half shekels of silver. Ten footrests of ebony, some damaged bits, uh, and then some more things of ebony, and then some more footrests of ebony adorned with gold, and then a sum of gold as well, though the amount is lost. Now this ultimately is a win for Kadashman Enlil. The things that Akhenaten is sending him are extremely valuable, and likely made up for at least a good chunk of what he's been sending in the past. Additionally, there is the promise of more treasure. After a number of years, it seems the pharaoh has grown a bit more mature in international relations, and am more willing to play ball with Babylon. Sure, who knows how things are going to go for the possibly missing sister, as well as the new daughter being shipped off, but that's a modern concern. As far as the king cares, daughters are just as much of his property as lapis lazuli, silver, and slaves, to be disposed of as he pleases. But after this letter, Kadashman Enlil has perhaps filled his narrative purpose, and after 15 years on the throne, he shuffles off the mortal coil. We know he had some construction projects, because he mentions them in his letters. But in the archaeological record, this era is so poorly attested that it's hard to tell what he built compared to what a successor with his same name a hundred years later built. So we move on to Berna Buryash II, Kadashman Enlil's son. And what better way to meet him than with the letter that he sent to Akhenaten on the occasion of his elevation to the throne? After the by now routine opening, Berna Buryash says to Pharaoh, as formerly you and my father were on mutually good terms, now may you and I be on mutually good terms. Between us, may another word never be spoken on the matter. What you desire from my country, write to me that they may bring it to you. And what I desire from your country, let me write that they may bring it to me. Bernaburiash then encloses a broken list of greeting gifts to mark the new king's accession to the throne. This is nice and polite, showing that the new king is starting international diplomacy off on the right foot. But stepping away from the Amarna archives for a moment, we also happen to know that Burnaburiash is not just sending these letters to Egypt. He will, over the course of his reign, send a daughter to Elam and a daughter to the Hittites. We even have a pair of letters from the governor of Dilmun, the modern island of Bahrain, which tell us that holding on to such a distant place was challenging, for even in desolate Arabia there were hostile raiders threatening Kassite civilization. 
The first of these letters, from Governor Ili Ipishara, tells of a Satian woman who had come from across the sea to meet with the local authorities, who was directed to, to carry any diplomatic correspondence up to Babylon. This is typical. For though we first saw the Satans pillaging and conquering, we must always remember that these vast ethnic groups are composed of many individual tribes and people, each with their own diplomatic goals. However, the governor is unable to help the Satan woman very much because it seems that the local tribe of Ahlamu has stolen all the date fruits from the fields, setting back the major industry of the region, date wine manufacture, substantially. Still, the governor wants to rebuild the villages plundered in the Ahlamu raid, but is unable to, for it seems that a certain holy man in the region continues to have dreams about destruction, prophetic visions sent from the Sumerian gods, and the governor is unsure of what he should do, so he's asking the king for advice regarding all three of these matters. As is sadly typical, we don't know Bernaburiash's response, but whatever it was, it seems that the prophetic dreams came to pass, for a later letter begs the gods to guard the life of the governor. It says simply, The Ahlamu certainly talk to me only of violence and plunder. Of conciliation they do not talk. My lord put it upon me to ask them to be peaceful, but they did not comply. It's unclear how much longer the Kassites were able to hold on to Dilmun, but it's likely that even during the relatively peaceful and prosperous period of Bernaburiash's reign, keeping so distant a land supplied and garrison may have been extremely difficult. Aside from this, he built quite a bit, and we have a number of economic records in Nippur from this particular period. But we have to return to the Amarna archives to get a sense of the progression of this part of his reign, where the next letter gets surprisingly intimate in the details of how Berna Buriash is actually feeling as a person. Following the standard well wishes for the pharaoh's well-being, and the standard greeting that is all, all is well with him and his kingdom, the next lines put lie to that very standard greeting. From the day that my brother's envoy reached me, my body has been unwell, and his envoy has not on any occasion had the opportunity to eat food or drink spirits in my presence. When you ask your envoy, he will tell you this. Concerning my recovery, I'm still not fully restored to health. But when my body was unwell, and my brother did not express any concern for me, I was filled with anger, saying, has my brother not heard that I am sick? Why has he not shown concern for me? Why did he not send his envoy to look into my situation? However, the envoy of my brother said to me, Yours is not a territory close by that your brother can hear and send greeting to you. The land is far away. To your brother, who is there to tell him that he should send an urgent greeting to you? If your brother could hear that you are sick, he would surely send an envoy to you. And so I spoke to him in return, saying, Does my brother, the great king, have a distant land or one nearby? And the envoy replied, Ask your own envoy this, because it is clear that the land is very distant, and your brother has not had a chance to hear about you, which is why he sends nothing concerning your well-being. 
Now, since I asked your envoy, and he said to me that it is a long journey, I was not angry against my brother, and I kept silent on the matter. This part of the letter is a bit baffling. Does Burnaburyash really not know that Egypt is very far away? This is an ignorance greater than his father's failure to understand ancient Egyptian royal customs. This is a basic fact of geography that a man who sends messengers all over Mesopotamia every day should be keenly aware of. We can't wholly discount the possibility that the new king is so sheltered that he doesn't have a good sense of travel times, but it might be instead that the king is simply pouting, though why he thinks it's a good idea to commit such a rant to Clay and has no one around to tell him to maybe, you know, edit this portion a bit, tells us that the apparent competence of Kadashman Enlil has left his son with a court so used to accepting the king's judgments uncritically. Or perhaps it's a calculated, extremely clever move. As is so often the case of the period, it's hard to say for sure. The letter continues, Inasmuch as he has told me, in the land of my brother there is everything, and my brother doesn't want for anything, and in my land everything is found, and I myself lack for nothing. It's a beautiful thing that we have received from the past and from the hands of former kings. We send greetings mutually. May it be the thing that prevails between us. Following this wish for peace, about three lines of what seem to be mostly platitudes are missing. When the letter is again readable, Bernard Buryash seems to be discussing a previous envoy, saying, You have detained my envoy for two years. As for your envoy, I've given him leave and sent him to you. Grant my envoy leave quickly and let him come back to me. And since they said that this trip is difficult, water is scarce, and the weather is hot, I have not sent you a large, nice greeting gift. For Mina of Lapis Lazuli, I have sent to my brother as a small greeting gift, as well as five teams of horses. When the weather is improved, on my next envoy I send forth, I will have him carry a nice, large greeting gift. And whatever my brother needs, may my brother write to me, so that they may be taken out of their storehouses. Not every word of this is strictly significant in the grand sweep of history, but I find even these little niggles over details to be fascinating for the window into what it was like to be a late Bronze Age king. You gotta think about... Oh, the weather at this particular season, maybe I should wait and start assembling a bunch of gifts for later. It's just these little bits of planning that, for me, bring it to life. The rest of the letter details, in terms of gifts, what Berna Buryash wants in implicit exchange for these greeting gifts that he's sending now. I've undertaken a project, as I've written to my brother. May my brother send me such high-quality gold that I may employ it in my project. As for the gold that my brother sends, please don't entrust it to the charge of any deputy. May the eyes of my brother see to it, and may my brother personally seal and send it. As for the previous gold my brother sent, evidently my brother did not see to it personally. It was a deputy of my brother who sealed it and sent it. As for the forty minas of gold that they brought, 
when cast into the kiln, only a portion of it turned out to be real gold. The rest was filler material. And as for Salmu, my envoy who I've sent to you, twice his caravan has been robbed. The first, Bir Yawaza, robbed, and the second was robbed by the governor of your land of Kisri. When will my brother adjudicate this case? When my envoy stood up in court, thus may Salmu speak before my brother. His equipments may they return to him, and his losses made good. Ultimately, this may have been the meaning of Burnaburi Ash's seemingly petulant outburst. The road from Babylon to Egypt is long and perilous, and having spent the first half of the letter establishing this, he may be trying to emphasize that caution should be taken with the important shipments that cross the lands between their capitals. Of course, it remains a possibility that the king's pouting is exactly what it looked like, an episode of unprofessional childishness tolerated because no one dares to speak against the king. But in the next letter, these same issues are raised. After the standard greetings, Burnaburyash says to Pharaoh, I and my brother made a mutual declaration of friendship, and this is what we said. Just as our fathers were mutual friends, let us be friends. Now, my merchants, who had set out with Ahutabu, were detained in the land of Canaan on business matters. Canaan, or Canaan, here being the Levantine coast, approximately the modern-day nation of Israel, plus a bit of extra land. We will be seeing a lot of Canaan when it becomes historically important, but for now the cities and tribes here are mostly vassals of Egypt. After Ahutabu went on to my brother, in the town of Hinatona, in the land of Canaan, Shumhada, son of Baalume, and Satatna, son of Saratu, of the town of Akka, sent their man and slew my merchants and carried off their silver. Inasmuch as I have sent post-haste to your presence, interrogate him. Let him tell you what he saw. The land of Canaan is your land, and its kings are your servants. In your land I have been despoiled. Investigate them, pay the money that they took away, and as for the men who slew my servants, kill them. I require their blood. But if you do not execute these men, they will do it again. They will either attack my caravan or your envoys. The envoy will be cut off between us. But if they dispute you, Shamhada, having constrained one man of mine, has detained him with him, and as for another man, Satatna of Akka, having forced him into his service, he's still serving him. Let these men come to you, investigate, and ask if they are dead so that you may know. For a greeting gift, I've sent one mina of lapis lazuli. Though this letter is fairly self-explanatory, it does show some realities of international travel and international diplomacy. After all, Egypt and Babylon are so far away. Why would the kings bother to maintain an expensive, long-distance correspondence? It's because of matters like these, but also because of matters like the next letter, which begins with a bit more whining about gold, but soon gets into the real meat of the matter. It begins, as usual, with Burnaburyash wishing well for the pharaoh's house, wives, sons, lands, officials, horses, and chariots. Then says, 
from the time of my father's and your father's mutually spoken friendliness, they sent lovely greeting gifts to each other, and they did not hold back any lovely request. Now, my brother has sent two mina of gold as a greeting gift. Now, if gold is plentiful, send as much as your father's. But if it's scarce, I want you to send half as much as what your father sent. Why do you only send me two minas of gold? Now, my work on the god's house is extensive, and I'm seriously engaged in carrying it out. Send me much gold. As for you, whatever you desire from my country, write to me and let them bring it to you. Again, this can come off as whiny to us. Who does Burnaburyash think he is to be demanding that Pharaoh just send him gifts of gold? But we can't forget that Burnaburyash has been sending his own gifts, and he expects these gifts to be repaid. This is his best way to get gold for construction projects, buying it directly from the Egyptians. There are some contemporary letters, such as from the now struggling Mitanni kingdom, that really do seem like they're just begging for gold. But Burnaburyash, as well as his father, both seem to believe that they've sent enough to justify a larger return of gold, while the pharaoh either has a different implicit exchange rate in his mind, or he's just being squirrely and trying to get the better of this exchange, exploiting the fact that it's called gifts to avoid reciprocating appropriately. This is just a side issue, though. Bernard Buryash's main concern is this. In the time of Kuragalzu, my father, all the Canaanites wrote to him, saying, Come to the border of the land. Let us revolt and let us be allied with you. My father wrote this to them, saying, Forget being allied with me. If you become estranged from Egypt, my brother, and become allied with another, will I not come and will I not plunder you? How can there be an alliance between us? My father, because of his respect for your father, heeded them not. Now, as for the Assyrian, my vassal, who recently visited you, it was not I who sent him to you. Why have they, on their own initiative, come to your country? If you love me, they will conduct no business whatsoever. Send them back to me empty-handed. And with this letter, he encloses a greeting gift of three mina lapis lazuli and five teams of horses. The last bit of this last letter is probably most significant for the story of Babylon going forward. There are actually two more letters, and a few more seem to have been from Babylon, but not from the king, instead being addressed to various princesses, but these are all badly damaged and seem to be mostly discussions of various gifts, some of which, though quite fragmentary, appear opulent. These are too damaged to read, though, and in any case, they don't tell us anything we haven't already seen. And so we want to get back to the matter of Assyria, because it's the portent of a coming shakeup. Things have been quiet for centuries. Seriously, as we get to Bernard Buryash's last letter and the year of his death, the year is 1333 BCE. Having blasted through over 250 years in very few episodes. Which is, I have to say, a bit disappointing for me, since I've been doing quite a bit of reading to prepare for the Cassites. Like, the Kassites are 
in a certain sense, the classical period of Akkadian civilization. And a lot of the best texts, indeed the very language, the standard Babylonian dialect language, comes from this period. It's hugely significant. But the fact is, there just isn't all that much we can say historically and politically about this period. Anyway, we're now getting into the interesting bits. Assyria, in an adventure that will be related in a future episode, has thrown off the shackles of Mitanni domination, only to find themselves in Babylon's sphere of influence. This is not where they want to be, and the growing city of Asher has begun to throw their weight around in international diplomacy, sending envoys as if they were a major power to Egypt and the Hittites. We know that the Hittites rebuked them soundly, though as we will see, the Egyptians, despite Berneburiash's urgings, appear to be a bit more cordial. The problem begins when Berneburiash dies in 1333. His son, as one would expect, naturally takes over, but it seems that this son, Karahardash, was also the grandson of the Assyrian king Ashur-Ubalat, for as part of the supposed vassalage of Assyria, Berneburiash had taken one of Ashur-Ubalat's daughters as his wife. Among the various Kassite groups, this was deemed to be unacceptable, and a revolt broke out, killing Karahardash in the process. However, Ashur-Ubalat was still in power in Assyria, and still quite powerful, and the killing of his grandson was an offense he could not endure. In what must have been a shock to the entire world order, the seemingly minor power of Assyria launched a lightning strike against the seemingly strong and dominant power of Babylon, driving chariots straight into Babylon itself and overnight overthrowing the Kassite candidate for king, replacing him with Kurigalzu II, still a member of the Kassite ruling dynasty, but one much more agreeable to the Assyrian king than the one that the rebels had put on the throne. Ashurubalit took with him a nice chunk of territory in the north and forced a new treaty on the new king. While this would have consequences for Assyrian history, the main hit to Babylon was one of perceptions. The invincible power was now clearly weak, and Kurigalzu II would have a number of severe tests in his reign. From outside, the opportunistic Elamites struck hard on the eastern edge of the territory, though it seems that they were driven off without too terribly much fuss. At the same time, a group of bandits coalesced in what is still likely a badly depopulated South Sumer and attacked the holy city of Nippur itself, despoiling the great and recently rebuilt Temple of Esag Dingir Ene. The chronicle describes the bandit leader as a certain nobody who had no name and held no gods precious, and condemns him for spilling blood within the holy courtyard itself. Naturally, this certain nobody met a bad end, but an attack on the holy city, which had by now taken on the role of southern capital, either formally or informally, was a bad look for the Kassite kings. In an attempt to make things better, Kurigalzu declared war on the people who put him into power in the first place, the Assyrians, now under a new king. 
This was a major campaign, with substantial pitched battles recorded at a place called Kilzi, deep in Assyrian territory, and a final climactic battle at Sugagu, only a day's march from the walls of Asher itself. By now, however, we have chronicles from both Asher and Babylon, each one declaring this final great battle as a victory for their side, complete and total with much slaughtering and capturing. Likely, it was a bloody battle, and throughout the entire campaign there were engagements that both sides could take credit for, but this decisive pitched battle at Sugagu was probably, strategically, an Assyrian victory. For the Babylonians marched no further, did not sack Asher, and concluded a treaty in which the boundary just shifted a little bit. But here both sides have established themselves as respectable great powers, though here at 1308 BCE, Babylon is now decisively on the downswing while Assyria is rising. But I have to leave us at this cliffhanger, because there is little sense in going forward without taking a look at the story of Asher itself and what they've been doing for the last few hundred years. But there's little sense in looking at Asher without seeing the Mitanni kingdoms rise and fall first, which plays an important background role in Asher's story. But there's no way of telling the Mitanni kingdom's story on its own. We have to look at the Hittites as well. All of which means that we're going to pause again after only a few quick episodes on Babylon to return to Anatolia. So join us next time as we bring the Hittites out of their own little dark age and into the fascinating and exciting Hittite Empire. Thank you for listening.